foggy morning. I know everybody's got stuff going on. I, you know, basements flooding and uh, water everywhere and trying to figure out what to do with it. And on top of that, it's a weekend. And so everybody's like, man, on the weekend, why has it got to rain? Why can't it rain while I'm at work? Um, but I tell you what, there's been a lot of blessing in it. I know for our family, uh, we, you know, Kelly and I and, and the kids have spent a lot of time just driving around, talking. We had a movie night last night, and, and uh, I, don't, I don't know about you guys, but I really enjoyed our men's movie night on Wednesday, and uh, maybe we need to do uh, a movie night for the whole church so we can watch another movie, because that was just an enjoyable time, and uh, um, I don't, I'm trying to think of any announcements we have for today, but uh, I can't think of any on, off the top of my head. I think, huh, stay dry. Yeah, and, and, if, and if anybody needs anything, uh, not just, obviously prayer requests can always be emailed out to the church, um, but if there's a need that arises, holler at me. We can rally the troops, you know, there's, there's stuff that, that people are going through, and I think sometimes, even as a small church, we go, well, you know, I don't really want to bug everybody about this. Bug us. We want to be a blessing to one another, and we'll get as many people together as we can, you know, whether it's sumping out a basement or shoveling snow or you know, whatever needs taken care of, that's what we're here for, to serve one another and to bear one another's burdens. That's part of the reason that, that God left the church here, not only to be a blessing to the nations, but to serve one another out of the love that he served us with. So this morning, I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. You know, so far in the book of Philippians, or in the letter to the Philippian church, Paul has written uh, on four major, th- three major themes. Uh, theme one can be cha- found in chapter one. It's called the, uh, the single mind. Paul is challenging the church and individuals in the church to have a single focus. Have you ever tried to do something uh, where you try to do two things at one time? Now, gals, you're better at this, but most guys, if you give us two things to do at the same time, we'll get so confused that we'll just kind of stay in the middle. It's like when I take two pieces of popcorn and I throw them at my dog. If I throw them straight up in the air above my dog, both pieces of popcorn split, and my dog just bites somewhere in the middle. He tries to to get a hold of that piece of popcorn even though it's not there. And we're the same way. We need to be having a singular focus in our lives. And when we have that singular focus, it will cause us not to waste a bunch of energy in every which direction. But then Paul talks about the submissive mind, and he gives us Christ as our example. He says in verse um, 8 that Christ, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And so he had a single focus to serve his father, and that single focus caused him to be submitted to the will of the father, which ultimately meant his death. But for us who trust in that death, who trust in the blood that was spilled in his submissiveness, it means life. And so our submissiveness to the Lord can mean life for others. And then in chapter 3, Paul talks about a surrendered mind. And he talks about that surrendered mind as he talks about himself as an accountant. Remember, I talked a few weeks ago, or I guess a couple months ago now, about Paul being an accountant. He looks at his past and he counts all the things that he had before Christ. He counts them as as rubbish. 
as the word really literally means like a bathtub ring, something nasty to be gotten rid of. And he accounts that loss so that he can gain something that he can't lose, which is Christ, his fulfillment, his righteousness, his justification, his life. And so as we see him looking at it as being an accountant, he also looks at it as he's being an athlete. And he says, I haven't already attained, verse 12, or am I already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Christ has laid hold of me, and I want to lay hold of him, and I want to finish this race called life, and I don't want to just compete. I don't want to get a participation prize. I want to win. And the prize is that relationship with Christ that we've been given, but he wants to take hold of it fully so he can enjoy it. Because the place where we get to enjoy our relationship, I believe, the most is here. In heaven, it'll be all that it was ever meant to be. But here, we get to grasp a hold of it in a special way because we get to trust Him in the triumph, and we get to trust Him in the pain and the suffering. And that's an amazing thing because if we get to trust Him in the pain and the suffering, when we don't have to suffer to trust Him anymore, it'll be that much more fulfilling. Because we'll be able to look at each other and go, remember when it wasn't this easy? Remember when we were in the trenches? Remember when it was, it was hard? Man, I wouldn't be able to appreciate it as much here in heaven if I hadn't known how hard it was on the other side of things. And so he goes on in chapter, chapter 3, verse 17 through 21, and he talks about how our citizenship, we're, we're supposed to live for heaven, live for then. Not live for now, but live for heaven, because that's where our true citizenship is. Verse 20 in chapter 3 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform these lowly body, or excuse me, our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So in chapter 4, verse 1, he goes on, and he starts talking about the secure mind. That's the the theme of chapter 4, our secure mind. Now, we think about the flooding that's going on. We think about things that can happen. We think about financial security, maybe. We think about um, security at our homes, where we lock the doors and we have cameras. And some people have systems where they can get on their phone and, and check and make sure everything's good at home. That It's all about security, right? It's all about making sure that things are safe and sound. You know, sometimes when we leave a, a spouse or a family member at home and then we go off on a trip, we come back, we say, thanks for holding up the fort. The idea is they've been maintaining the household and make sure everything's up to par while you're gone. And so what I want to point out this morning is that Paul's going to talk not about the security of our finances, the security of our homes, the security of our jobs even. What he's going to talk about is the security of our minds. I don't know about you guys, but that to me is where the battlefield really takes place in my life. I don't have to struggle uh, most of the time with securing my house. I don't care. You know, I, I do care because my family's there, but I don't own much stuff. So I'm just like, take it, whatever. You know, that's one less thing that owns me that I have to maintain and pay for and like, take it. I, you know, if you take it and I don't buy it within a year, I probably didn't need it in the first place, you know. Uh, take my TV. You know, we were worried the other night about the, the lightning. 
blow up my TV. Yeah, it's going to be a transition period, but I don't frankly think we spend a whole lot of productive time in front of it. You know, so obviously we've got two young kids, so we kind of need the thing once in a while to get a little break for mom. So, you know, but the idea is that I, I don't struggle with that nearly as much as I do with the war that goes on in my brain, my mind, the center of me. And so Paul goes on here. He says, therefore, my beloved and my long for brethren, remember he just said that our hope is in heaven. That's where we're living for. And God's going to transform our, our humble bodies into glorified bodies, just like Christ was submitted to pain and suffering and death. He obtained a new body. And I really believe that the, the resurrection, while it is the linchpin of our salvation, is also showing us that if God can raise Jesus Christ from the dead physically, then he can also meet our spiritual needs. He can raise us from the dead spiritually. And so in verse 1, he says, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren. Remember, he's writing to the church. These are people who also trust in Jesus. He says, My joy and my crown. This is the trophy for all the work that Paul is doing to spread the gospel. Not churches, not buildings, not institutions, but people. And I love that because Paul loves people. He says, my joy and my crown. It's all about his relationship with these people that he's invested in. So stand fast in the Lord, beloved. He says, stand fast. Hold the line. He doesn't say stand fast in your position in the community. He says, stand fast in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And then he says, and this is going to be a personal note, verse 2 I implore, or I beg of you, Euodia, I'm going to mess these up, and implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord, to get along. I implore you, he says, get along because of your salvation. Be of the same mind. Agree with one another. Even when you don't agree on things, get along. Make a point to make peace between one another for the sake of the Lord who saved you. So there was some division in the church. And you've heard the phrase that says, united we stand and divided we fall, right? You've also heard famous uh, politicians and country leaders say, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Where did that come from? That came from the Bible. Jesus said that. He says, you, you guys are saying that the, the miracles that I'm doing, I'm doing them by the power of Satan. But he says, if Satan casts out Satan, then he's going to fall. Because a house divided against itself cannot stand. And if the leader of the house is cutting away at the house itself, then it won't stand the test. And so he says, be of the same mind. Does that mean that they have to agree on everything? I, I don't think so. But he says, in Romans, he says, as much as depends upon you, get along. Do as much as depends upon you to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's Ephesians. So over and over, this theme comes up, and division in the church hacks away at the testimony of Jesus. It's a shame to the Lord when we don't get along. He says, I urge you also, speaking to these particular people and then speaking to people in the church, he says, I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel. Now this helped me because I didn't know if these were girls or boys' names. I don't know about you guys, but I always look at the names and I'm like, these females or males what's going on but there was division between these ladies 
And he's speaking to a specific person. I couldn't figure out who it was. But he says, I urge you to help these women who have labored with me in the gospel and with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. They are causing division in the church. Help them to be reunited. Help them to be reconciled. And remember, these people are Christians. Just because they're causing division doesn't mean they're not believers. What it actually means is that they've lost their single-focused mind. It's not about Jesus anymore. It's about so-and-so or so-and-so, and it all needs to be about Jesus. And so he says, put away these arguments. And for those of you that I'm asking to bear with them and to bring them back and reconcile them, remember and give grace to them because God's been using them in the past to share the gospel. So if they need a little grace right now, those who proclaim grace also sometimes need grace. I know I do. Ask my wife. I always say that, but it's true. I'm the biggest needer of grace, if that's a word. And so he says, these people have been used greatly by God and their names are written in the book of life. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, just a quick note on the end of chapter, or verse 3. He says, their names are written in the book of life. Do you know if you trust Jesus, there is a book, and it's a record book. And it's the one you want to be in, by the way. And it has your name written in it. It says your name, and it's before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that is the book that says, this one trusted in Jesus. Well done, good and faithful servants. Interesting enough, the contrast is in 1 Corinthians 13 where he says, love keeps no record of wrong. So God doesn't keep a record of wrong. He takes that record that was written against us, that was true, he casts it into the depths of the sea, never to be read again, and then there's this new record. And it doesn't have a big long list. It's just got our name. Written in heaven, written on basically, many people have said, on the hands of Jesus. We are remembered by the Lord. He has not forgotten us. So verse 5, number well, verse 4, he first says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, God, Paul writes through the pen of, uh, God writes through the pen of Paul and says, Give thanks in all situations. But he's not saying give thanks here. He's saying rejoice. Be full of joy is what the word rejoice means. Rejoice in our circumstances? No. Rejoice in our security? No. He says rejoice in what? Rejoice in the Lord. He is our reward. A relationship with the God of the universe is the reward that should give us joy. The fact that our name is written in the book of life for all eternity, that's where our joy should come from. Again, I will say, rejoice, he says. So he says it twice, and many times in Scripture, especially if somebody that has a Hebrew background writes something twice, it's for emphasis. He's saying rejoice, and then he says, again, I will say, rejoice. He wants to make emphasis on it. Verse 5, he says, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. So then he goes on to verse 6. He goes past this instruction to these ladies, and then he writes in verse 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication 
with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So he starts by saying, be anxious for nothing. Now Paul, remember, from our image up here, this is his view. It's the view from inside of a prison. Paul is writing this very letter about rejoicing and being secure in the Lord. He's writing it from the inside of a jail cell. So when he says, stand guard, I can't help but think of the fact that Paul has guards constantly around him. This is interesting, even though he wasn't really a violent criminal, and he never threatened to leave jail. But he was chained to at least one guard, probably two. But here he is in jail, and he says, be anxious for nothing. He's writing to the Philippian church, and he's been told by another man, Epaphroditus, what's going on in the Philippian church. There's division. There's problems, there's disagreements, they're losing their focus on the Lord and they're making it about them. And so Paul knows about anxiety, by the way. He's not writing this from his high tower of everything always working out great. That's why I always have a problem with prosperity teachers that say, once you start trusting in Jesus, your life will become what it's supposed to be. Or perfect, or, you know, it will become what it's supposed to be, but it won't always be perfect. I have a problem with that because Paul the Apostle, who wrote a good portion in the New Testament, spent a lot of his time in trials and problems and jail cells. If everything is supposed to work out once you get saved, why was Paul in jail? Why did he ever suffer hunger? Why did he ever have problems within the church? Because I think probably the prosperity teachers have missed the point of the gospel. Our heaven is not here. This is the most hell we will ever experience To the non-believer, this is as close to heaven as they'll ever get. But to the the believer, this is as close to hell as we'll ever get. And some days feel like that, right? But hell is going to be way worse, I promise you. So he says here, be anxious for nothing. So let's break up these words a little bit because words have meanings and sometimes they lose their meaning because they get overused. The word anxious here actually means literally to be pulled in different directions. Do you know that? Anxiety, or the act of being anxious, pulls us in different directions. So when the Lord says, trust me, and then circumstances come up, and we become anxious, it divides our attention between God and our circumstances. I know God's promised this, but this is what my life is actually like right now. It divides us. Again, that division causes us to have anxiety, and that anxiety causes us to lose our singular focus. He says, be anxious for nothing, but the New Living Translation says, don't be anxious for anything, but pray about everything. I think that simplifies it, right? Don't be anxious about things, pray about things. I even heard a a Christian comedian that I love this week on his podcast say, well, I guess worrying can be useful. That's not what Scripture says. Actually, in Matthew chapter 6, verse uh, 33, he says, uh, don't worry. He says, don't worry. uh, He says something to the effect of not to be about worrying, but instead to trust the Lord. And I'm going to turn there here in a little bit, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. He said, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which passes knowledge, 
will guard your hearts. The idea is will stand guard over your minds. We think of the, the heart. We think of our emotional center. We think of uh, where we kind of feel. But the heart in the Hebrew language is more of the, the mind, the center for what directs what we do and think about. And so when he says this, he says, the peace of God will guard or stand guard over your, mind, your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. I want to point out another word. When you think about anxiety, you think about worry, right? We, we spend a lot of energy worrying. And, and one of the reasons that we do this is because we think by worrying, we can add days to our life. We think by worrying, we can fix things. I'm the worst at this. I'm an engineer. I, I think if something goes wrong, it's because I didn't plan enough. And so next time I plan even more. But that doesn't always fix the problems. So the word worry in the old English actually means to strangle or to choke. I thought that was interesting. Worry chokes us. And those of us who have a problem with worrying, we know that. Worry is a thief that robs us of joy. It actively steals our joy. And so as I was thinking about this on Friday night when I'm reading this passage, I heard the word choke and I was like, oh, this is perfect. So let's go to Matthew in chapter, excuse me, Mark chapter 4. Turn to Mark chapter 4. This is a well-known passage, but I, I'm praying that the Lord will breathe some fresh breath into it for you. In Matthew chapter 4, Mark chapter 4, I keep going to Matthew. Mark chapter 4, verse 3, he says, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and it happened as he sowed that some seeds fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground, yielded a crop that sprang up, increased and produced, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. Now, what I want you to know about this passage is when I was in Israel— I finally understood why in the world was this guy even sowing seed on stony ground? Why was he sowing it on shallow ground? Why was he sowing it on a pathway where birds could eat it? What's the, why would you even waste it, right? Like, if you think about being a farmer, what you do is you go find a good field, you buy it, you till the soil, and you only throw seed on the good soil, right? That's what we do. But in Israel, the ground is not built like that. Many times they have terraces. And so what you'll have is, if you're looking at it from the side, you'll have ground that's going like this. And like now when it's raining, if it just rains and the water just goes down the side, everything erodes away. But what they have is a pathway where you can go in between the rows. And it's like switchbacks on a trail. And on that trail, you have stony ground. That is the path. That's the pathway. It's not cement, but it's stamped down so the seed won't penetrate the soil. And then the next, you have a piece of ground that's kind of thorny, and it hasn't been really prepared for planting seed. And then the next, you have this other ground that um, is shallow. And it's shallow because in Israel, there might be a whole bunch of rock, kind of like in Iron County, and there might be just a little soil on the top. But then there's some rock right underneath, but you don't know it's there unless you dig it up. 
And so you have all these types of ground, and they're right next to one another. So when you sow the seed, unless you're really good and you just throw one at a time, it's going to be all spread out. And the farmer that's got all this ground doesn't have time to throw one seed at a time. And so he takes his hand in his satchel, and he throws the seed out, and he broadcasts it to every piece of soil. Now he is wasting. Somebody knows the good soil is going to multiply so he can afford to lose a little. And so while he's sowing this seed, these are all the things that are happening. So he's telling them a story about something they see all the time. So why is he telling them this story? Well, he's speaking to all this crowd of people that are following around. Remember, Jesus has been performing miracles. He's been teaching. Uh, Sometimes he stops and he feeds everybody. And so as he's doing all of this, he's got this big crowd. Well, Jesus teaches in parables because he wants people not just to receive it and, and go with it. He wants them to have to think about what they're learning so that those who really don't want to know, but they just want the bread and the circus, the miracles and the food, that's what they get. But those that are hunger, hungering for righteousness and truth, they'll dig a little bit deeper and they'll ask questions. And so his disciples, praise the Lord, they say, hey, um, Jesus, what did you mean by this story? We all know about sowing and gathering, and we know about people planting crops. Why in the world are you teaching us about this? I thought you were coming to be our king. I thought you were coming to deliver us. Why are you teaching us about farming? I'm not a farmer. You know, one guy might say he's not a farmer, and one guy's like, hey, I'm a tax collector. Why are you? This doesn't mean anything to me. Where's the rubber meet the road? How do I apply this? And so Jesus answers them. If you ever have anything in Scripture where you're like, Lord, I don't even know why that's there, ask the one who wrote it. Ask the Lord. He wants to answer these questions. But in verse 13, before I get way off topic even more, he says, do you not understand this parable? Now, parable is where he tells an earthly story to cast alongside an earthly meaning. So he says, how then will you understand all the parables? He's saying, this is kind of a key to understanding the rest of the parables. He gives us the rules of interpreting parables. I think sometimes we draw too many things out of a parable, and Jesus is trying to teach one thing. But he says in verse 14, here's the deal. The sower sows the word. So the seed is the word of God, right? He says, and these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. And he's talking about this pathway, this hard soil where the seed lands. And when they hear it, Satan comes immediately and he takes away the word just like the birds did. Verse 16, these likewise are the ones sown on stony ground who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. He's talking about the shallow soil that has stones right underneath it. It takes root immediately and they have no root in themselves And so they only endure for a time afterward when tribulation or persecution arises for sake of the word, immediately they stumble. So these are people, and you've met them before, where they hear the gospel, they put their faith in it immediately, but there's no depth to it. There's no depth to their faith. It's not been tried. And so while there's tons of stuff growing on the top, there's no roots. And so when tribulation, so somebody comes along and, and, and there's tribulation, something happens in their life, they lose a loved one, or something goes on wrong, they go, you know what, that's not worth trusting anymore, and they leave. And then there are also those who are persecuted. Somebody comes along and they maybe poke fun at them. You trust Jesus? Like, hasn't science disproved all that ridiculousness? 
and all that's all it takes. And they go, you know what? I'm out. I can't do it. And so this is the shallow soil. There's no roots. And we always say that as Christians, we need to have roots. We need to have a firm foundation. Foundational work happens below the surface. We feel like nothing's happening. But the foundation has to be built before anything can be built on top of it. And then he says, these are the ones, verse 18, sown among thorns. So some of the seed is sown among thorns and weeds. They are the ones who hear the word. And look at this, verse 19. The cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in, and they choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. The cares of the world, worry, anxiety, fears, doubts, they choke us out. This doesn't mean that you're not a believer. What it says here is that the word is received, the person believes it, and, and it could be as simple as a Sunday morning. We come in, we hear the word of God, it penetrates our hearts, praise the Lord. It starts to grow and take root, and then Monday morning comes. I struggle with this. The emails start flowing in, the phone calls, the problems, the people that don't like you very much, and so they're trying to stumble you, and, and all these things that happen in the cares of the world... The trifecta of Satan comes in, and because we haven't gotten rid of these weeds or cut them down or sprayed some weed killer on them, they're there, thorns, thistles. They make the word that we've heard unfruitful. Have you ever planted a garden where this happens? I have many times because I'm too lazy to weed. I plant, the, I plant the seeds or I plant the little saplings or the little you know, shrubs, the seedlings, and as they start to grow... So do the weeds. And the, the plants keep growing. Tomato plants grow no matter what, it seems like, for me. But the, the weeds and the thorns that are in there, they take the nutrients from the soil. And when those tomato plants get really tall, for some reason they won't put out any decent-sized tomatoes or any at all. It's not as fruitful. What's the deal? What's the problem? Well, there's weeds at the bottom that are soaking the nutrients that should be going to the tomatoes. And because of that, it's not that there's not a plant there. It's just that there's no fruit. Jesus said, I have called you to hear the gospel and go forth and bear fruit. He didn't say just take in the seed of the word and just sit there and don't produce anything. He said, be fruitful and multiply. That wasn't just about having children. That was also about taking the word of God and having spiritual children. Now, at the same time, it's not for an apple tree to sit there and go, I got to produce apples. You go to an orchard, you don't see that. They do. That's because the person taking care of that garden or that orchard or that vineyard goes in and deals with the weeds and declares war on them. We have to declare war on our anxiety, on our fears, on our doubts. We have to trust God and not our minds or our own natural ability to see things for what they are, but God's bigger than our fears. First Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, God's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. What does it mean when something is sound? It's sure. It's unshakable. It's unmovable. I don't feel like that most of the time. So what's the antidote for our anxiety? Philippians chapter 4, back there. He says, be anxious for nothing. Is it just as simple as, okay, just don't worry. I've tried that. It doesn't work. He gives us something to do with that energy that we expound on being worried. He says, instead, 
in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. He gives us instruction. He says, don't worry, pray. Don't worry, make requests. Notice that he doesn't just say, give a list to God. Supplication is giving those requests to someone that could fill those requests. But he also says, be thankful. He says, do this with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. I'm reading a book currently. uh, I'm listening to it. My eyes get tired. But I'm listening to a book uh, called Tramp for the Lord. And it's a book about a woman by the name of Corrie ten Boom. And she was in Germany and in Holland. She was from Holland. And she suffered along with the Jews in the Holocaust. Her dad loved the Jews and taught his family to love the Jews because they are the ones responsible for giving us our holy scriptures and keeping them intact. They're responsible for bringing up our Savior. He was a Jewish man. But as her family loved the Jews, they started building hiding places inside of their home to hide the Jews so they wouldn't be taken off to these prison camps and exterminated. They were saving people's lives because they trusted the promises of God. So she makes it through the Holocaust, and she makes it through all these problems, and she survives. She loses most of her family, I think all of them. They die in the Holocaust, in these camps of starvation, of weakness. But she grew closer to the Lord in these things, and what she learned in there was to give thanks in all situations. At one point, they had lice in their cabin. And the lice were not dealt with because they didn't care if people died. But those lice, her sister, who was weaker than her, said, we need to give thanks. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, give thanks in all things to the Lord. She's like, well, how can I be thankful for lice in my bed while I'm trying to sleep? I'm infested with them. Well, because they had lice in their cabin, the guards would not come in. And this Bible that they smuggled in to this concentration camp, they started leading women's Bible studies. And all of these Jews started coming to know Jesus as their Savior because they were in this circumstance where someone was sharing the Word of God with them and was giving thanks for the lice. Now, many times we get lice in our life. Maybe they don't come in the form of lice. And so what God instructs us to do is give thanks we can give thanks, we can have proper perspective. If God's allowed this thing into my life, perhaps it's because I need it. She needed lice in order to be able to share the gospel. Now, what are the lice in your life that God's trying to tell you? You don't have to be thankful for them, but you can be thankful in the circumstances. And then he says, in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God The peace of God. We know the God of peace, but God offers us His peace. And I know this because in John chapter 14, verse 19, Jesus wrote this, or spoke this, to His disciples. John 14, verse 19. Jesus, after speaking of his death to his disciples, the hour is getting close for him to be crucified. So he speaks to his disciples and he says this, and it probably seemed archaic to them at the time. It probably seemed like it made no sense. He says, A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. 
because I live, you will live also. He's already telling them about the resurrection. At that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself to him. And then Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest or reveal yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So the promise of God's presence. Verse 24, He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Verse 25, finally I'm there. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, is what he says. I've been present with you, and I've spoken these things to you. But the Helper, he says, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your your remembrance all things that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So he's promising peace to them, but it's not the peace that you can receive from something that happens in this life. It's not an instruction that, hey, you're going to have peace because of something you learn from this world. He says, the peace that I leave you, he says, is the peace that the world cannot give. He says, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I'm going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. And so the promise is the presence of God. In God's presence, we have fullness of joy. And part of that is because we have the peace of God. The peace of God is a gift from God that's given by the presence of His Spirit, giving us understanding of the things that are going on in our lives. And what I wanted to say about Corrie ten Boom is that her life did not get better after the concentration camps. But God gave her things to do, and she traveled all over the world into her 80s, sharing the gospel in hard circumstances and situations. And the amazing thing is, is that she still struggled with anxiety and fear. And over and over, what's been encouraging in this book, Tramp for the Lord, is that she, circumstances happen in her life, and she gets frustrated and upset with people. She gets frustrated and upset with God. I love this. Not because of what she went through, but because it encourages me. This woman of faith that lived for the Lord still struggled with anxiety. And every time that she did, she would be humbled by the Lord and reminded that he was aware of her circumstances, and he, at the very most, had planned them for her. And every time she missed a flight, or her flight got canceled, she traveled all over the world. Anytime she lost her luggage, anytime that she lost her money or didn't have a place to stay, God had a purpose in it. When she missed her flight, many times it was because God wanted to place her on a different flight so she could talk to a different person. When she didn't have a place to stay, it was so she would have a conversation with somebody that she wouldn't have if her, her way was steady and continuous and she didn't have any problems. So all the time we are asking, Lord, please make my life comfortable so I can trust you. 
But all the time, we need to remember that when we're comfortable, we're less likely to trust him. And so he turns up the heat a little bit, or he allows circumstances. I cannot tell you how many people I've seen out and about in our community through all these rainstorms and through the flooding, or even on Facebook, people actually communicating with one another. Not just sharing posts uh, to generalities, but calling one another, text messaging one another, helping one another, interacting. We don't get that on a normal everyday basis when everything's fine. My family is just as guilty. When things are going great, nobody's having any problems, you know what we do? We go drive to another community and ignore everybody. We go take a trip or we go hike in the woods, and none of those things are bad. But hard circumstances that make us anxious give us opportunities, number one, to trust the Lord, and number two, to experience His peace. And number three, to pass that peace and that trust to to someone else that may not know the Lord. And so back in Philippians chapter 4, after he says, let your gentleness be known to everyone, he says, be anxious for nothing. Don't worry about things, but trust the Lord. And then he says, uh, make requests to the Lord. Ask him for help. I tell you what, when you ask someone for help, it chips away at your pride, doesn't it? I like to be able to do things on my own. I like to be able to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I like to build things by myself. But what the Lord is showing me is that I need to learn to ask people for help. He says, uh, finally, verse 8, Brethren, whatever things are true. Remember, we're still talking about the battlefield of the mind. We always focus on our problems, and then we take our focus off of God. Our eyes can only focus on one thing. You ever notice that? If you're, if you're looking at something over there, you, can, you can't really see the things that are up close to you. If we're looking at our problems with a magnifying glass and we really pull them into our focus, what does it hide? It hides the, the providence and the provision of the Lord. It hides Him. And sometimes what we need to do is take our problem and set it next to our God and realize that He is bigger than our problem by far. He's the one who created the universe. So he says, finally, brethren, here's what you should focus on. Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, what he says is to meditate on these things. Now, most of that can be fulfilled by meditating on the Word of God. My circumstances say this, but my God says this to me. He promises us things in His Word, and many times I don't focus on those. He promises us, if we will pray and seek Him, that He will guard our hearts and our minds through Christ Jesus. He will guard. Psalm 127 says, um, If the Lord does not build the house, those who build it labor in vain. We, in vain we rise up early and we sweat and we do everything we can. And in vain we stay up late worrying about how we're going to do things the next day. And Matthew 6 says that it, worrying can't really do anything other than rob us of energy and joy. So he says meditate on things that are praiseworthy and true and honest and righteous and excellent. Praise, thing, praise the Lord for things that are praiseworthy. Verse 9, he says, The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these things are the things that you should do, 
and the God of peace will be with you. And so, verse 6 through 7 talks about how we are to deal with anxiety through right praying. Verse 8 tells us how to deal with anxiety through right thinking. It's not just about praying, but it's also about the way we think. Guard your thoughts. Pay attention to what you dwell on. If it's things that upset you, you will get more upset, I promise. If it's things that worry you and divide you and choke you, then it will do those things. He says, pay attention to what you think about. And then verse 9, right living. He says, the things that you learned and received and heard and saw me do, do them yourselves, and the God of peace will be with you. So, Dealing with anxiety can be dealt with by right praying, right thinking, and right living. Now, does that mean that you will want to do those things? No. But again, I said last week, the things that you practice, you will get good at. If you want to practice thinking on the right things, you'll get really good at it. If you want to practice doing the right things, you'll get really good at it. If you want to practice praying through everything, think about the things you worry about the most. Are they things that you have prayed about regularly? And I'm venturing to say that probably not. Or you have prayed about them, but you've since stopped praying about them and worry has creeped in again. So let me challenge you to do these things. And then one more thing in James chapter 4. James chapter 4. What's the opposite of dealing with anxiety in this way? James chapter 4. An example of wrong thinking can be found in verse 2. He says, You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. So he says, if you, if you have things that you need and you're worried about them, pray about them. But if you don't have them because you're not asking, that's on you. Ask, Jesus said, and you will receive. So that's the idea for wrong thinking. Verse 3, wrong living. He says, well, I already read that one, didn't I? I skipped ahead. No, he says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. So wrong living. And then verse 1, wrong praying. He says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? I think I got these notes all mixed up, and I'm sorry. But you see the idea. It's the opposite of right praying, thinking, and living. So, turn with me to Matthew 6, and we'll close. Matthew 6. Verse 25. Jesus' own words. Therefore I say to you, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they are? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God so clothes the grass of the field, 
which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. The idea is they spend all of their time trying to get them. He says, Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. And so when we pray, it's not necessarily that God's going to change everything, but in many cases, He's going to change your perspective. He's going to remind you that He is faithful. He's going to remind you that He created these, the, the world that we live in and that He knows our needs and that He can fulfill them. He says, But seek first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's pray. The instruction this morning, Lord, from your word was to not worry, but to pray. So, Father, we begin by right living, by praying. Father God, we need you. We have circumstances that are bigger than us. We have water that's flowing in from places we didn't even know were weak places. Uh, we have businesses that are in need of, of fixing. We have um, decisions to make this week that are, are bigger than us, and we don't know what the best decision is. Uh, we have children that um, are not following you, and we, we need to know how to interact with them. We want them to know Jesus. Uh, we have coworkers that stress us out and cause us to, to question whether or not you're in control. And so, Father, uh, we have many more things than these. And yet we know the God who spoke life into existence, who spoke the heavens and the earth, who deals with evil and judges righteously, we know that you provide the food that's on our tables, the money that we get to spend to, to, to enjoy and, and to provide for our families and to deal with uh, medical bills and all the things that come along with life. We know that you've provided our homes for us. We know that you've provided our, our children. We know that all of these things are under your throne. You are the king of all kings. And so, Father, we bring our request to you this morning. We pray that you would be God over the circumstances and the situations and restore to us the joy of knowing you. Father, we ask that you would interact in our lives, show us your plan, and help us to trust you in all things. And in the meantime, as we struggle and as we waver, thank you for your grace and your patience with us. Lord Jesus, please bless each one of your children this morning as we go out into this world, as we go back to the lives that we have going on,